welcome to Municipals, hosted by yours truly, Dylan Welch, our in-house intellectual snark, Britt Bird. No, oh, hi, uh, hi. And our uh, our Washington correspondent and uh, uh, lo-fi microphone holder, uh, David Many. What's up? Uh, we're produced by Monsieur Piches. Hello. And uh, we also want to have a word in from our sponsors, two people who complain an awful lot about Ronald Reagan National Airport. Yeah. I'm, I want to give... Okay, first off, I didn't know that that was my subhead for your intellectual snark. I'm going to have to... <laughs> it changes that. Yeah, but um, I, I do want to open this episode with a salute to, to somebody out there. Two people who, by the misfortune of providence have to live in the greater washington area but are making the best of out of it that they can and that there's an article on the one and only citylab.com by kristen caps titled most airport noise complaints come from a handful of cranks the best example that they cite is none other than ronald reagan washington national airport wherein two individuals at one residence in Northwest D.C. accounted for 6,852 complaints, 78% of all complaints. The article continues, these people need to move. Assuming the pair splits up the workload 50-50, that's nine complaints each per day. Maybe one gets a cold and the other picks up the slack and gets 18 calls. 18 calls in one day just to tell the airport personnel that one D.C. household thinks their operation is noisy. Trust that they know. I want. I, I am inspired by these people. These actually. people are mavericks. I mean, last episode we talked about uh, kind of boisterous town halls about bike infrastructure, and I think we we're all mixed about this. I'm not mixed about this at all. These people are great. <laughs> do, you, do you have a beef with airplane noise, or do you just uh, saluting these people? I'm just saluting these people that like they're they're pissed and they actually found an outlet for it. Yeah, like people <laughs> who actually find the weird, very specific complaint number in the back of the white pages and actually go through the trouble and, and call it it's like it's like a, a the next level up from calling your congressman about everything you know yeah i i, do. I, I wonder if they like call in to a human being to complain every time like if they have a really great rapport with uh-huh. jerry at reagan right and they become like their uh their civic therapist yeah <laughs> tell me how that makes you feel it's like hey ron hey jerry the airplane's loud again <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? You know what it might be is um, somebody is not complaining, but they actually just have like a clandestine romance with whoever is manning oh, the complaint. Oh, it's fucking obvious. Yeah, actually, and this is how this is obviously also how the Russians are actually tapping into our phone wires to hack everything. Oh God, <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Including for the Dylan's laptop. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. So. Tell me, is the is the airport very little again, comrade? Can As I... the Washington correspondent, for for a bit of context here, actually, I don't know if it was like a slow news month or something, but I remember about a year ago, planes. Plane noise over the Palisades, which is this one neighborhood where I imagine these people live in Northwest DC, was like a huge deal and was in like every single local paper. Um, I think the FAA or something introduced a new algorithm of routing planes over cities. Hmm. Uh, So it actually changed the flight path to Reagan to Hmm. go not quite over the Potomac. Um, And people in this like really sort of wealthy Tony neighborhood in Northwest were really up in arms about it uh so i think that's where this started they started calling it like the palisades pause these people i guess like talking over their rose bush had to like wait for the plane to pass that's hilarious well speaking speaking of 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 big looming things 
let's get into our main topic of today. So, so I, I will cease making fun of DC. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Very so, attacked. So, <laughs> so this is this this is our first uh, post-election episode, right? Mm. Actually, we we recorded pre-election uh, last week or last episode, but it <laughs> didn't come out till after the election. So maybe that was a bizarre experience listening to that knowing what we know us being very chipper yeah yeah or cautiously optimistic um so now um i think as we all have i've been i've been thinking about the fallout from this election i think one theme that one, one reading and one theme that i have been focusing a lot on is kind of this idea of the failure of kind of um center left technocracy to kind of really deliver results which is that you know the, the the DNC and the Clinton campaign and very much the Obama administration was you know extremely fixated on incremental approaches and incremental solutions. Obama's OMB and uh, you know regulations department in DC like was known for being really into like these small little regulatory nudges. And if you read up on it, it sounds like cool stuff. And and I think anyone who's into urbanism and stuff like that would all find it somewhat interesting however i think on november 9th when you wake up and all of it comes crashing down immediately it has added a new light to this discussion of liberal technocracy and so can we before we go any further can you can you define i think everybody knows what liberal means but for for viewers who are maybe not as well versed in everything can you can you define technocracy for us in this context well actually it might be it might be useful as well to actually uh, define liberal too um, and that I think as of late, maybe this is just because I'm in New York, but uh, I think the distinction between liberal and left or, or, or socialist has become bigger. But I think uh, when I'm saying liberal here, I, I do mean um, liberal in the sense of, of in favor of free markets. Oh, like capital L liberalism. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, the dreaded neoliberal or everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that, in that Obama is very much... A liberal, whereas Sanders, while still at the end of the day probably a liberal more than anything else, is is closer to a, a democratic socialist. I'm talking about liberalism that is not trying to drastically, uh, you know, renationalize things and not, you know, the liberalism that's trying to just kind of tinker with the market and correct the market. Um, technocracy is what I'm talking about, kind of about, um, you know, placing trust in experts and and elites to really do empirically proven good things that that you know more or less enlightened or maybe even nowadays woke liberals would say are like yep. for the best of the people or for, for oppressed communities. So it's very much focused on expertise. This, you know, was a big thing going back to kind of the founding of the New Republic, actually. Um, and Walter Lippmann was a, a author who wrote a lot about this. He wrote a book um, kind of extolling the, the benefits of a, a kind of smart technocracy that's inspired by a kind of militant work base or, or labor base. And speaking of Walter Lippmann, I think I've been thinking a lot about one essay in particular that I kind of want to open with, which is uh, by one of his contemporaries, uh, Randolph Bourne, um, who was part of kind of the pragmatist tradition at the time. John Dewey was also a big pragmatist left-wing thinker in the United States that were kind of all the fathers of this tradition of, of liberal technocracy. And Randolph Bourne, well, he one, is just a fantastic writer, and I'd recommend anyone uh, revisiting any of his essays. They were actually rediscovered kind of in the 60s as part of uh, the new left uh, really latched onto him. 
he has this one essay called Twilight of Idols, which I think is probably his most famous that I revisited this week. Um, and it is it is haunting in many ways because Randolph Bourne stuck out from all these other guys in that uh, at the outset of uh, World War One, the New Republic, which was this new sterling progressive magazine, actually ended up falling in lockstep with Woodrow Wilson and in, in supporting World War One. Yeah. Um, and Randolph Bourne saw this as a, a total betrayal. And he was particularly disappointed in John Dewey, who is his mentor. And, and he wrote at length about how this was kind of the, the total collapse of this technocracy. Um, and, and this idea that just uh, focus on the details and having kind of a bloodless politics is doomed to fail. Um, so I, I want to... A re- bloodless politics? Yeah, and the, no, no strong ideas, no real movements, but um, kind of... Uh, focusing too much on incremental change for the sake of incremental change, and kind of forgetting the the goalposts at the end of the day. Um, well, I think I think uh, it might need a little bit more more clarification. Sure. So bloodless uh, be, bloodless being like seek a lack of um, confrontation on these issues, and instead have a small group of enlightened men. Sure. Just well, make it's a, it's a lot about what people are talking about about the the kind of smugness of current. Uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. politics, and, and Randolph Bourne is offering a uh, very much left-wing critique of this. Okay, um, so I'll, I'll read from him here. He starts in this essay by saying, uh, "You know, this is after war has been declared, and he's reacting to it." He says, "What I have come to is a sense of suddenly being left in the lurch, of suddenly finding that a philosophy upon which I had relied to carry us through no longer works." I find the contrast between the idea that creative intelligence has free functioning in wartime and the facts of this inexorable situation too glaring. The contrast between what liberals ought to be doing and saying if democratic values are to be conserved and what the real forces are opposing upon them strikes too sternly on my intellectual senses. He goes on to say that uh, John Dewey's philosophy, kind of this this technocratic philosophy, is inspiring enough for a society at peace. Prosperous and with the fund of progressive goodwill, it is a philosophy of hope, of clear-sighted comprehension of material means. It depends on a store of rationality and is effective only where there's strong desire for progress. So this this part strikes to me uh, very much talking about you know in the Obama era when Obama's still in office. This seems like a, a eminently reasonable approach to politics now that not quite a country at peace still but yeah it, right. it did seem like right. there yeah the obama administration had this culture of just like administrative right. competency yeah yeah so now that that's completely fallen over and now ben carson's gonna be leading hud oh god um oh god. i think can we been... talk about that for like a quick second can we we'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. yeah so yeah, now okay. now um now i think we're left at the moment where Figuratively, we're no longer really at peace now. We have no time for yeah. this little incremental uh, progress. And Bourne then goes on to talk about a little bit more of what he would like to see or, or outlining the real pitfalls of this, which, which is saying that no program is suggested, nor is there a feeling for present vague popular movements and revolts. Rather, are the latter chided for their own vagueness and impracticalities. And then he says, but when the emphasis is on technical organization rather than organization of ideas, on strategy rather than desires, one begins to suspect that no program is presented because they have none to present. Now, this this haunts me because this is a critique that was laid against the Clinton administration very directly. Yeah. Now, this has made me think a lot about 
urbanism in particular, because I think urbanism is inherently technocratic at a certain level. However, I mm-hmm. think it is also inherently about ideals. And I'm wondering how we should balance this and like mm-hmm. what, what, you know, is urbanism something that needs to be moved into popular movements? Are there are ideals that need to be articulated or at the end of the day, is it something left to experts? And I want to segue this actually directly to, I think, the one ideologue that American urbanism has most directly is certainly Jane Jacobs. Mm. And if we were to build kind of like a, a popular uh, movement and, or the biggest popular movement that we have so far is definitely new urbanism that is kind of has her as her patron saint. But I think there's a contradiction here a little bit in having Jane Jacobs as, as your uh, big ideological movement on urbanism. Cause as an article in none other actually than the new Republic, which whose politics have changed a little bit since 1917, we should say. They had a bit of a a kerfuffle a year or so ago, right? Yeah, but there there was a book review of a recent anthology of small little essays by uh, Jane Jacobs in The New Republic. There was also an autobiography that came out, uh, or a biography that came out that was also reviewed. So there's kind of a resurgent interest in Jane Jacobs right now that um, has the subhead, Why Libertarians Adore Jane Jacobs. Don't forget the Jane Jacobs opera, by the way. Has that come out yet? I don't know. I just heard about it. But that is the most niche thing I think I've heard in weeks. <laughs> so, um, I just love that it exists. Yeah. The, the, the article's a good one, and I would recommend it. It's by um, Max Holleran, dated November 22nd. And it, it strikes basically the idea that, that you know, Jane Jacobs' approach prominently in Death and Life of American Cities about kind of incremental growth um, and a rejection of the Moses era renewal it is inherently actually predisposed to to libertarians adoring this and and kind of latching on saying ha see big big master planning doesn't work yeah um, yeah I mean when you think about it a lot of a lot of the thesis there of of lively streets is individual people right. doing so, a thing like small buildings not stuff built on a large scale right so let's let's take a step back we've introduced this figure Jane Jacobs. If you could give a, a miniature biography of, of who this woman is, what yeah, her philosophy well, was, her the, impact. The urban is, you know, Jane Jacobs is probably the most famous figure in American urbanism, other than Robert Moses, her natural foil. Um, and I do want to say that there's no way I can actually provide a like historiography of Jane Jacobs in this episode alone. Let's just the focus, on the, focus on the clash between her and Moses. I sure. think that provides so a good... Jane, Jane Jacobs is the uh, author and activist who is most famous for opposing Robert Moses' plan for driving a freeway through Soho and Little Italy and uh, Washington Square Park. So it kind of became like a, a symbol of opposition to Robert Moses in his most... Uh, you know, crazed urban re- renewal days. So people, myself included, uh, very much respect Jane Jacobs because, you know, we think that she avoided the travesties that happened or further travesties that happened, say, to Penn Station or uh, with the Bronx, Cross Bronx Expressway that absolutely de- devastated the episode of Tremont. So she is kind of the vanquisher of Robert Moses for this right. reason. But at the base of this idea, it's kind of what she, she talked about in her most famous book, The Death and Life of American Cities, which, of course, talks about the importance of, you know, eyes on the street being more important than certain, like, infrastructure, that parks aren't really important unless you have engagement near them or you have reasons for people to go to them. Yeah. It was kind of a takedown of, like, Corbusier and, and, and that whole model of uh, architecture and planning. And it kind of birthed new urbanism, which is all about trying to get people, you know, 
back on the streets and, and walkability. So, right. however, they, it w- I think it was necessary at the time for or, or for tackling a uh, overzealous period of, of urban renewal that was very much clear uh, aimed at slum clearances. Yeah, and I mean it's very of color is quote a, unquote slum clearance. Right. right. I mean, really, it, this whole era was defined by um, you know the post war boom and right. uh, the construction of the interstate highway system, increased right. reliance on cars as national policy. Right. Um, you can really see the effects of Robert Moses ask policies in uh, places, especially in the Midwest, sure. um, like Detroit. Detroit's a big example. But I think now we're uh, now we're at the point where new urbanism is in vogue, um, to a certain extent. But what are the biggest challenges, say, in in the New York metro region? Region. It is building the Gateway Tunnel, another tunnel into Penn Station. Yep. It is perhaps doing. Penn Station over again, through routing, it is redoing toll congestion. These are all big, huge problems um, that uh, new urbanism can certainly contribute to, but they, they are by any definition definition of the word master planning. For this nation at large, we need a huge infrastructure redo, as I think everyone listening probably knows, you know, our, our bridges are all about to fall apart. It's not just the Tappan Zee, it's everywhere. <laughs> so there, there is... There is uh, there is definitely a need for master planning across the board in the entire country. So my question, I guess, at this this juncture of the conversation is, does urbanism need these ideas and kind of these passions under underneath it, like powering it as a movement? And if it does, is, is Jane Jacobs an appropriate one? Or is is her mode and, and lesson right now too susceptible to kind of libertarian modes of thought and, and, and kind of rejection of master planning? Well, I mean, is the question essentially, does urbanism need populism? I feel like, because I feel like that is... Yeah, that's um, one way you could think of it, yeah. I feel like there's a there's a strong populist um, message that can easily apply to places outside of cities in the United States, but I don't think there's, there's an urban politic in this country so much as there is a suburban or if a I rural can, one. If I can push back on that... Um, Please. I think one of the things that this election was about, to put it in very, very simple terms, is this kind of disregard for um, the, 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 the feeling and, and, and holistic opinion of the masses about the current situation that they're in because they're not able to express it in a very specialized, highly educated way. Uh, it gets dismissed as being incorrect or you're voting against your own interests. You don't really understand what's going on. When I think the truth is, in aggregate, people generally have a pretty good picture of what's happening around them. Um, so, like, for example, in New York City, I've talked with plenty of folks who feel like the the MTA and the public transportation system could be revamped in a way that doesn't necessarily cut into... Uh, their income because I mean as the fa- as the fares rise and as more and more lower class people are getting pushed out to the fringes of the city their commutes are getting longer it's getting hard for them to make ends meet yeah. which makes it harder for them to take care of their kids but technocrats um, they don't they don't they don't know how to approach that with anything other than well here are the numbers we need to right. make these numbers balance. Right. It's it's the voxification of our thing. And and I think I, I <laughs> like Vox. I think man. I think Vox is good and Vox should still exist, but Vox should just not be the face of our politics. <laughs> um, but I think you're right, Dylan, to a certain extent that that you know, people have, you know, 
universal need or like universal needs speak better to people as politics yeah. than anything else. If someone's saying my rent's too high, too often nowadays we're saying, oh, but look, we just passed mandatory inclusionary zoning. So that means for new developments in these yeah. certain areas, like if you make 20 percent of AMI, and they're like, what the fuck are they, you talking about? I can't means. afford my rent. Like yeah. I, I want you know, rent control, or I want, you know, Medicare for all. So, like, these little small details that, that we run run with every day are, are useless as a politics. Yeah. So I think that there I mean, are urban issues that could use a dose of, of universal thinking. Yeah. Or, or it's it's partially a communication issue, but I also think that it's a... It's, it's entering an era where, or I guess coming out of an era where we thought, okay... We found the perfect system, you know. We've we've beat fascism. We've beat communism. The we know of, how to the organize. End of history. Yeah, the end of history yeah. thing, right? We know how to organize our politics and economics. So from here on out, it's just tinkering with the model. We don't have to talk values anymore because the values are universal. But um, politics and economics never stop being about values. So, like for example, even in our own movement of urbanism, right, of trying to get things a little bit more concentrated, a little bit more community organized, I think sometimes. For example, in places out in the middle of the country, um, in smaller towns and suburbs, when there's talk about introducing public infrastructure like trains, uh, subways, a lot of people don't necessarily value the same things that the urban movement wants to bring to bear. Some people like the freedom of having the car. Some people like that lifestyle. Some people enjoy that. People, I'll push back on that a little bit, though. There is a movement, there's an organization called Strong Towns that I think has had uh, some decent success. People have a very specific nostalgia for Main Street. And there's a uh, kind of a famous report that somebody made in like the 50s, made the 60s, about Muncie, Indiana, and how it was supposed to be this ideal, you know, American town, like r- random American town, and had a lot of problems with it. And it was nostalgic at the time. It was already outdated by the time it was published. But it was notable for the coverage and the imagery of it was this revitalized, like, small little town of 50,000 people that had a walkable Main Street. Yeah. It had a Macy's odd Main Street that you walk to. And I think people now are coming around to the point that they want that. That that uh, And nostalgia, I think, is more harmful than it is good. But I think that people are more susceptible now to being convinced that, oh, uh, putting parking lots everywhere, that might be why I find no value in my community because it just looks like a giant fucking parking lot for, for 100 miles in every sure, direction. Sure, And a lot of those small towns, though, um, you know, I mean, 50,000 even is a little uh, big. I mean, that's like a suburban town and an urban metro. Saratoga. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of those walkable main streets you used to drive to, and people enjoy the driving model because it gives them space. When If people are having nostalgia... Um, you know, let's let's just, you know, come out and say, just like Britt said, there are some parts of um, nostalgic movements that are bad because oh, yeah, they're they're looking yeah. they're looking backwards at eras that are not perfect. They're, there's no such thing as but a I golden it's age. Hitting, it's hitting at the point that I think people wanting a meaningful yes. built environment is a universal value yes. that we should appeal to. Yeah. So I think I mean, I got to say, though, it, if the problems that are really that people are wanting to confront are really deep social issues like unemployment, like even, you know, fear-mongering about immigration, what's what's the sell for less parking lots? I feel like it, it sort of gets bumped down in the hierarchy of what the country is talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, that, I think that's where um, a technocratic urbanist appeal really falls flat, is if you just keep talking about streetscape improvements, you're not really touching on the rest of that. 
Right. I mean, I think you could say that, and I, this is a little bit pie in the, more pie in the sky that I want, but that everyone has a universal right or universal good of having meaningful public space around them, that everyone should have meaningful public space and be able to walk to a grocery store. Now, I think you're right, uh, David, that, that that even just trying to say they should be able to walk to a grocery store kind of hits at the point of food deserts and is already a little bit more technocratic than I want. However, I still think we, we can dial it into other more universal goods that we might be talking about, such as you know, Medicare for all, I think, is one that the left is really latching onto a little bit as well. We could also talk about the the public benefits of 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 denser living, and I think that in a sense, this is this is already kind of a cultural touchstone. I'll point to the fact that it was fascinating to me that none other than Infowars.com of Alex Jones Nuttery boy. had had an article about Austin, Texas's plans to essentially encourage denser uh, zoning. They got, I think they got rid of parking requirements downtown and encouraged a, a upzoning of something there. And it was criticizing this as being like a, a kind, like vaguely anti-Jeffersonian. That's giving a little bit more credit to Infowars than they actually have. But, you know, it was saying that, that like to them, like having a car was like some sort of right. And that was an American value in itself. And yeah. I think that... I mean, there's also a great nostalgia about that too. I think that the, is dying, though. I think I think that golden age of the auto. Yeah, but I, I think you can point to the same. Kind I mean, of, as somebody who's uh, about to do a cross country road trip, I still very much buy into that. Nostalgia, yeah, I, at least a little bit. I yeah, agree. but for a road trip, I think is different than daily living. That's true. But I but I disagree because I, I mean I will get out of the the um, the tri state area and go visit. Get back on the mainland. Get back on the mainland. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'll talk to people. I'll talk to, to um, relatives out in um, Ohio, Las Vegas, Rochester, New York, all sorts of places. And seriously, the freedom of the car um, and big, wide open spaces is is definitely still a really important American value. But I don't want us to focus too much on the transportation aspect of this. Sure. I would be remiss to let us conclude this podcast without talking about um, the kind of inherent tension that we're talking about because yeah. I think part of the reason people enjoy walkable spaces, why people enjoy or have nostalgia for, uh, you know, the, the 50s, the post-war era is because they had strong communities built on um, shared professions um, where they had real connections. Racial homogeneity? Yeah. Well, no, actually, to, to step away from that for a second, um, <laughs> although that was also present is really just tying in with their community and having a place to plug yeah. in. A lot of the the towns that are dying today in America are places that are post-industrial or they're in coal country or something like that. And the backbone of the community is a certain business or a certain industry. And once that goes away, the community itself dies. There, There's an exodus mm-hmm. of people and their yeah. kids go to other towns and cities and other states and other Lots parts of, of the business. country. Yeah. Right. Uh, which means that it's not just the economics, which is, I think, something we have to keep our eye on and, and, and is the theme of this podcast, right? It's stop looking at the numbers and look at the people and look at what they value and what they want because sometimes the numbers are misleading. Like Obama and Hillary Clinton and advocates of the center left are always pointing at numbers with, with some good reason, but, but, but also kind of losing sight of like, okay, if the unemployment is 4% or if the GDP has been climbing or uh, gaining jobs for however many consecutive months, 
what does that mean for certain parts of the country? Like numbers aren't enough sometimes. Right. You have to look at people's actual quality of life and what they're looking for. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, glad with, you, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought up the Rust Belt city thing and the, the exodus point. Yeah. Because I think that brings up a useful contrast in that the libertarian answer to this or, and the market-based answer to this is, oh, just move. Like people move, yeah, but which people is a, don't value which is that. A, which is a callous yeah, response exactly. and totally neglects people having roots and wanting community. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So we need to counterbalance that with something that's that's uh, more succinct and, and a public a positive vision of building out and preserving communities. And right. I think it's probably going to involve job trading. It's going to involve lots of things. Um, and I, I think we do need to, to figure out a way to message it more universally. Right. My suspicion at the end of the day is that this is going to be somewhat like the conversation of reparations, where when we talk about it for more than 10 minutes or so, we, we realize that providing universal goods or like redist- solid redistribution or, or meaningful redistribution will necessarily accomplish basically reparations and that so accomplishing building uh you know solid uh built environments in these environments will also necessarily accomplish things like in the fields of racial justice or reparations or or uh you know things about food deserts we need to stop talking about things like food insecurity and and food deserts or or more niche topics and talk more universally and we'll also get it's, to those. Yeah, stop saying food insecurity. It's yeah. hunger. It's hunger. It's it's yeah. start it's there starvation. Are people are hungry. Yeah. They need food. All right. And so I, I was just gonna tie it in also to one last thing and then we'll close out. Well I, yeah, I, I have one section I have one more reading to close out with. I didn't get to all my quotes, but that's to be expected. So then this is <laughs> this is one little great excerpt from uh, the preeminent New York Times architecture critic Otto Louise Huxtable, who uh, wrote this this one just little column in 1980 that that mentioned an interaction between Jane Jacobs and somebody else, that really I'm glad I, I stumbled across it. So um, it's a article uh, titled "A Conference on Cities" from uh, October 1980. So she's talking about this conference of cities that she went to in Boston. And, and the, the kind of vague critique up to this point in the article is that it was kind of just a lot of puffery and that it was kind of just not, re- it was more focused on political hurrah than anything else, which is kind of ironic given what we've said so far. But then at the, the end of the article, she says, there was one lively exchange between Jane Jacobs, author of The Death and Life of Great American Cities and Champion of Neighborhoods and Incremental Growth, and James Rouse, the de- developer responsible for the Fannel Hall marketplace and its burgeoning offspring in other cities. Oh, man. Arguing the virtues of big plans versus little plans, Mr. Rouse recalled Daniel Burnham's, and Daniel Burnham was the guy who did the Columbian Exposition in uh, Chicago. Chicago and also uh, wrote an infamous plan for San Francisco. Arguing the virtues of big plans versus little plans, Mr. Rouse recalled Daniel Burnham's famous exhortation to make no little plans that fail to stir men's minds and came out for big plans as the new compelling rational images of what a city could be. Mrs. Jacobs didn't find the image particularly compelling. She thought that piecemeal should be made a respectable word again. Life is an ad hoc affair, she said, and has to be improvised all the time. The only point on which all apparently agreed was that plans should be humanized. Mrs. Jacobs' observations that cities would never be humanized by conceiving urban models at Harvard got her the conference's standing ovation. The warnings of Ian Menzies, the Globe's urban affairs columnist against cosmetic recitations, went unheeded, along with his urgently expressed hope that Boston would be a pace setter in the discussion of gut issues of violence, racism, and the quality of urban life. Great cities, he wrote, 
are the conscience of mankind. It takes more than hype from City Hall to make cities great. Again. Mm. Again. Oh, no. <laughs> you had that plan the whole time. That's crazy. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think this does go to show that, like, I think this is true of any policy issue where if you drill down enough or turn over enough stones, there's really, it's hard to identify a left-right spectrum. It's all very messy. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think yes and no. I think I think ultimately turning over, I mean, I guess you're right, because zoning is, is in some respects a democratic effort at apportioning uh public land or private property rather and that zoning has a bad history of racial animus mm -hmm. to it but yeah. at the same time so does the private sector so i mean yeah I, I guess it's a fair statement to say that it can get blurry at the the lower levels of discourse but i think or at the lower levels of detail but i think at the higher level urbanists independently articulating values might result in both the left and the right competing over those values which is a mm -hmm. process that we as urbanists might benefit from, ultimately. I agree. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a great discussion, guys. I think we're going to keep it nice and yeah. short this episode. Join us. This will be our typical length, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, yes. I uh, do recommend Twilight of Idols as an essay. There are other aspects of it um, that I didn't get to read because they weren't, they weren't quite as pertinent that, that are absolutely haunting to this day. And if you're interested in this kind of discussion of you know, the, the place of technocracy in, in left-wing thought, or even if you're not left-wing and you're listening, uh, it's, it's a really fascinating resource because the, the echoes are just absolutely haunting. So definitely pick up Randolph Bourne. He's great. And with that recommendation, we're going to close out the episode. So thanks again for joining another episode of Music House. Uh, join us for the next episode where I'm going to be leading a discussion on City's role in immigration, deportation, and the age of Trump. I will review very positively um, in the 
all door boarding, which is great. It makes it, it makes it truly go faster, and New York should be ashamed for dragging its feet and actually uh, rejecting it. They blame it on fare evasion, and I'd love to talk about buses for an entire episode. But fare oh, evasion yeah. is, is no, a no. totally cop-out response to it. Um, ultimately, yeah, but it, we can, I mean, not to say, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it is not a significant concern for transit agencies. And we can talk about how transit agencies should actually be more interested about mobility than revenue. That's a good example of moving values right. and, and recentering values. But anyway, uh, San Francisco does a great job at uh, all door boarding. They have automated uh, announcements of the, the stops. The buses are new. Um, they have very direct routes. They don't waste their time trying to turn right four different times like New York City buses. So it's incredibly <laughs> fast. They're intuitive. Good routes to, for someone who didn't even know the city. It took me exactly where I needed to go. One thing I'll say is that the, the fare payment system is confusing to someone who's unfamiliar to it, but that's kind of a problem only for tourists. It's kind of intimidating. It's not tokens, right? Yeah, it's not tokens, so well, it's so not as shitty as Philadelphia. As, as long as we're on this, can you expand on, on, on what that is for people who maybe aren't familiar? For what? The fare payment system, whatever that. Right, so it was confusing because walking around the city, uh, we saw like the, thing, the, the light rail, and we saw the buses, and we didn't see any place to actually buy tickets. Yeah. Uh, so we're kind of confused about it. We're confused if it was the same system because we knew that BART wasn't. Um, so we're like, ah, oh, gosh, does this even work? And then we saw there are buses that are hooked up to electricity on top. And yeah. I was like, oh, fuck, it, what, which one is that? Is that a bus or is it like BRT <coughs> or is it like, is it some weird form of light rail? Like, And then all the, the language that Muni uses is weird. It's like Muni buses, light rail, and buses. And I'm like, fuck, I can't map this to each other. At the end of the day, it's all the same fare. So they should just do a better communicating job communicating that it's the same fare. But we actually ended up buying an app where you can buy a ticket and activate it on your phone, and then if someone comes onto the bus to check them, you just show them that. So oh. that's kind of cool if you're a tourist. I was going right. to say, for Pete's sake, if the Bay Area didn't have some kind of tech solution to yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course. So that was good, but they need to communicate it better. Yeah. But I will accept that that is a problem mostly for tourists, so I don't really blame San Francisco for not wasting a ton of time. Yeah. All right, here, you want to, um, based on your, your high New York City standards, you want to grade Muni, I guess, and then give a retroactive grade for Philly from the last episode? <laughs> okay, sure. Um, well, I don't know if I'd say New York City is high standards. New York City bus system is is slipping. Its ridership is... is um, Sad. Yeah. So I'll give San Francisco bus system A. Definitely an A. Muni, I'll give a... Uh, B minus just just because um, the the routes are a bit confusing. The map is not really accessible, and it doesn't really extend at all to the west side of the city. Um, I did not ride Bart, so so A for the bus, B minus for the the light rail for Philadelphia. My backtracking uh, is F for fare payment system, N A <laughs> uh, for buses. I did not take one there. Um, a B for the map it was all right. The only confusing thing is that there's these tram lines that are very confusing if you're not familiar with the system. Yeah. But as far as like headways and frequency of service on the Philadelphia subway, I'll give it actually an, an A minus. 
pleasantly surprised me. So I, I created different categories for every city, but there you go. I think we're going to have right. to eventually make a, a, a scorecard, score like yeah. a PDF that we can have people yeah. download of Brits. Philadelphia, <laughs> also, of Philadelphia also has the, the awkward situation that New York has where they have one subway line that goes through the city that is run by New Jersey instead of them. Yeah, yeah that we they keep should, doing that. That they should just fucking buy as the MCA <laughs> should also just buy the path. It's just stupid, but you know. But either way, I was also pleasantly okay. surprised how large the Philadelphia regional suburban train network was. So. All topics for another episode of Municipals. Mm-hmm. Cool.